Hello, welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Chris. And today we are joined by Steel Wagstaff, who's here to talk about open education publishing. Steel, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. You know, I didn't realize you did the live intro. I thought it was like a it was just so smooth. It was fun. Thank you for providing a welcoming <laughs> environment for me to come in and to fun and welcoming people. So I, I'm Steel Wagstaff and I work for a company called Pressbooks. We make open source publishing software to help people publish and share whatever knowledge they want. But mainly the people that are using it are often using it to publish open educational resources or open textbooks. And before I started working for Pressbooks, I used to work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is where I met Morgan. Mm -hmm. And um, have been kind of interested and involved with what we would call open educational resources or open pedagogy for the last, say, almost a decade now. So thanks for having me on. And thank you for being here. Yeah, it's great having you here. So you threw the term open educational resources out there. Yes. Uh, do you mind expanding and defining what open educational resources slash open education publishing, what these mean? Sure. So there's a lot of definitions, a lot of functional definitions for open educational resources, but often you'll hear people using the acronym OER, and that's basically shorthand for open educational resources. And usually when we talk about open educational resources, we're talking about material that could be used for teaching or learning that has been released under a copyright license that permits its free sharing. And often uh, when we try to decide, is this thing open or not? There's several criteria. One is that it needs to be free, typically no cost. And the other is that um, there's a, a guy named David Wiley, who's a kind of early leader in open education. And he's developed what he calls the five R's. And so these are the permissions that content should have to be really classified as open. The first of the five R's is the permission to retain the material, which means that you need to be able to make, own, and control a copy of whatever it is that's been shared. So can you download it and keep it? Or does your access expire at the end of the term or the end of the year? So if it's truly open, you'll be able to retain it. The second of the five R's is to revise it. And this means that you have permission to edit, adapt, and modify your copy. So, for example, if you wanted to translate it into another language, you had the permission without seeking permission from the copyright holder to do that. And ultimately, like it should be in a form that permits the easy use of, or the easy application of that technical permission. So you could have a technically openly licensed PDF, but it's very difficult to revise PDFs. So that probably would not be the spirit of open in that case, right? Mm -hmm. The third of the five R's is to remix. And this means that you have permission to combine something that you've made, your original material, or a revised copy of this resource with other existing material to make something new that might be substantially different. So you have permission to remix it in advance. The fourth is to reuse it, which means to use the thing in an original revised or remixed copy and use it publicly, i.e. put it on a website, share it in a presentation, take it in front of the town hall meeting that you're going to or, or whatever. And then the fifth and a very important one is that you have the permission to redistribute copies of either the original, your revised version, or your remixed copy without seeking permission from the resource holder, which is the copyright permission. So you can distribute copies and give them away freely. So if something has a license that permits those five activities, those five R's, we would generally say, yes, it meets the definition of an open educational resource or OER. So being a free and open source software person, I can't help but notice that those R's that you just gave, you could say they rhyme or are pretty much directly the same kinds of terms that have been used in the free and open source software world, all the way moving back to, I think, uh, RMS's original free software definition in the 1980s, then kind of reappearing in like the open source definition and the free culture definition in kind of various ways. So would you say in some ways that this is kind of a domain-oriented application of those same ideas? Yeah, definitely. I think if you look at the history of what we were calling open educational resources, it very much flows out of the open software movement or the free and open software movement. So a lot of people are saying, hey, look what's happening with source code and software and these collaboratively created things and how much more interesting we can make projects, how much more quickly we can move, how, how we can fix bugs. We can really improve the quality of the code bases we use by making them free and open source. And we also give people 
radical permissions, and we allow them to more freedom when we do those things. And a lot of those same values really appeal to educators. If you think about the very best teachers that you know, almost all of them are thinking about, we care about sharing. We care about giving. Education is really a, a generous impulse for most people who are educators. And so a lot of those values, I think, mapped on really nicely. And that's ultimately, I think, the origin story of a lot of open education has its roots in some of what was happening with open software. That's definitely the case when you talk about open licensing. Mm -hmm. Because just as people were trying to figure out how can we tell other people that this software gives you this permission, where because the law says once something has a fixed form, copyright intrinsically applies, and people are like, actually, I'm waiving all of these rights. The same kinds of uh, legal challenges were what people were trying to figure out when they were trying to figure out the first open content licenses. So Lawrence Lessig wrote a very influential book and was helping people think about how you could develop what we, would, what we now call the Creative Commons licenses. And the Creative Commons Foundation and the licenses are part of that evolving way of figuring out how can we apply a license to something in tangible form that has copyright protections, which lets other people know, hey, we're waiving. We, we still retain copyright, but we are giving you, we're granting you all of these permissions in advance if you comply with these few number of conditions. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the story of open education licensing or Creative Commons licensing and how it relates to content. Now, that's the kind of the technical legal framework, but, but it, is, it does very much have its roots in, I think, what was happening with open software. Mm -hmm. And a major theme of this show is the idea of freedom, and you just mentioned it there in your response. Would you like to talk a little bit how that's related to education as a fundamental human right? Yeah. So this, this was something for me that that's kind of speaks to the heart of why I care about this. And it's that I do believe, like many people, that education is or should be a fundamental human right. And it should be globally available. And it's not. And that's a sad reality of the world that we live in. But if you go, for example, to the United Nations, they have their sustainable development goals. And it's a series of several goals that they want the world to meet by 2030. And the fourth of those goals is a goal about education. And so I'll read just part of that. It says, by 2030, the goal is to ensure that all girls and boys complete free, equitable, and quality primary and secondary education. Second, ensure that all girls and boys have access to quality, early childhood development, care, and pre-primary education so they're ready for primary education. And third, ensure equal access for all women and men to affordable and quality technical vocational tertiary education, including university. So I think there's, there's aspirations there in that saying, we think it would be a better world if every human being had access to high quality pre-childhood care, then were prepared to do primary education, and that it was free, equitable, and of a high quality for everyone in the world. Now, that takes a lot of work. I mean, education is hard, and it requires human effort, and it requires materials, and it requires commitment usually by governments to fund that and make sure that it is free and equitably available. And so I think that there's a role for a lot of different social players. There's certainly governments have a role to play in that and there's uh, nonprofit organizations and other people. But there's also a role to play, I think, in not just thinking about the labor and the humans that will do the teaching, but making sure that people have the materials they need both to be autodidacts or to teach themselves or that educators have access to things that they can use in their local context without very high cost barriers. So that's where I think oh, the open education movement tries to come in. With what, they're, what they're trying to do in a couple of ways is, one, it's to bring down the costs of teaching and learning materials, especially the cost of textbooks. So part of it is cost disruption. But another really important part of it is, is that, that word that we've talked about, it's freedom. And it's to say educators want and deserve the freedom to adapt and make the content that they're teaching relevant to their students and their learners. All education is local, you know, in a certain sense. And having the ability to personalize or to localize or to indigenize your content is a really important freedom that I think educators deserve. And so that's where I think the open education movement is trying to shift that conversation and to increase rights, partially through the mechanism of those open software licenses or open content licenses, but generally towards the philosophy or spirit of, open education practices and, and making that more of a norm in how education happens uh, wherever you're at. 
And that level of access to education also increases individual people's agency to go forth and do good things in the world. Absolutely. Like it, it just unlocks the intrinsic human potential for so many of us. And you can imagine like all of us know really talented, impressive people who felt like uh, their life opportunities were limited because of the access or the lack of access they had to education at various points mm -hmm. in their life. And that's a human tragedy, and it's a social tragedy, too, when people aren't able to fill their full creative or human flourishing or their potential because educational opportunities were denied to them for structural reasons or even for, you know, individual personal reasons. Can I throw in something that I think is kind of curious? Yeah. With all three people currently on this call, all of us have some degree to which our work is technical these days and does involve some amount of, you know, involvement in programming and so on. But also, I think all of us have a humanities background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's two different things that I'd like to jump off there. One is I'd like to hear more about your background. And the other one is I kind of want to expand on this idea. You mentioned the autodidactic like ability to kind of study at one's own pace and customize to one's own pace. You know, when you said that, it kind of resonated with me of, oh, th I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to learn so well, like pick up these technology skills on the side is that free and open source software world was very accommodating to that. Yeah, totally. So I'm kind of curious what your experiences are. So could you mind explaining your background? And was that at all relevant to how you did end up picking up these other technical skills? Yeah, great question, Chris. Thank you. So I would say for me, at least it was at the heart or the core of my, my life story or my journey. There's a poet that I really love and admire that was part of my dissertation. His name is Charles Reznikoff. And uh, one of his poems, he writes, first, there is the need and then uh, the way or the name or the, you know, the, but this idea that at the beginning of everything, there's a need. And I think for me, at least, and when I'm thinking about open education, all of my later technical interest and commitments came out of what I felt was a primary acknowledgement of a need or a, like a philosophical or moral orientation. And I thought, you know, like there's a whole bunch of things that are wrong with the world, but usually we'll see one and we'll find an injustice that we want to work on or we want to correct. And we say, hey, here's something I want to try to budge or make a difference in. And for me, it was this access to education. And I thought I was studying um, literature. So I taught and cared a lot about poetry and poetry has has very rarely been a financially lucrative profession for any of its practitioners. It's largely existed in kind of the form of gift economy through most of its history. And yet it has been a central preoccupation and a central cultural predilection for so many people. In nearly every culture, they have a tradition of oral or written poetry. It's the celebration of the language. It's how you keep language alive and transmit your, your values to the future generations. And so I care a lot about poetry. And I know that that's like a, it's a non-commercial or a Literary history is very different from the novel, which is like a very bourgeois, uh, market-driven genre. And so when I'm thinking about poetry, I'm thinking about largely things that matter for non-commercial reasons most of the time. And so that was a predilection or a predisposition that I had, and that's something that I cared about and was making my professional training. And I also, while I was going to graduate school, I realized that an enormous percentage of my peers were depressed or clinically depressed or suffering from some form of like clinical mental illness, and that largely related, I think, to the conditions of their life and employment and graduate school is not particularly healthy in the humanities. Mm -hmm. And that, that distressed me. And I was, you know, worried about that. And so I started thinking about what I really wanted to do. And the, the job market was also bleak, which contributes to that feeling of depression. And I was taking a, a seminar that was building a public facing environmental histories primer with Bill Cronin, who's a really well-regarded environment history scholar. And I loved the project. I was like, wow, this is going to be useful to others. In the process, we also met a bunch of librarians. And I started thinking about who are the people that I know that are helping others, that are doing good, that also seem to be well-adjusted and kind of happy with their lives and professional careers. Maybe it's a bit of an idealization, but in many respects, I thought of a bunch of librarians that I knew. And I thought that's something that I would like to be and I'd like to do. I like a lot of the librarian profession. The library is the last bastion of pure idealism in certain ways. It's like, we're going to make this place, we're going to buy a bunch of books, and then they're going to be free to anyone with the library card. They can come borrow them. Like that's, it's a wonderful idea. And still the right and the left, almost everybody in our society supports that and think that's the worthy thing. And I think it's an amazing cultural idea that we have. And so I love that idea. And I thought, well, I want to be involved in this. So I got a library degree. And in the process, I also wanted to learn how to build websites. Like I knew that I was using Google or I was using the library's database search engine. And I was finding all sorts of information, but I did not know how it worked. It was sort of like a magic 
black box to me. And I realized that's kind of an uncomfortable feeling where I'm organizing all this information and calling it up, but I have no idea what's actually happening. And I like using the internet and I like visiting websites, but how do you make a website? Like how, how does that work? And the only place at the university that was teaching web design or how to build a website was the library school. So I started taking library school classes so I could learn how to make a website. And then I wanted to learn how databases were designed. And then I wanted to get the degree because I thought this is a career that would be fulfilling for me. And then as I started thinking about it, it's the movement into open education sort of makes sense in hindsight. It's like, oh, you had an interest in books. You had an interest in literature, but not selling books, making them free. You have an interest in library and the kind of socialist anarchist principles of libraries. And oh, wow, here's a place that all of those things intersect really nicely, open education, open education publishing. And that's sort of my story and my path into the, the field that I'm in now. And you could provide support to yeah. the people around you who you saw were, you know, struggling too, right? Yeah, I think that that's the really, so in terms of my actual career, I was a graduate student. I did two years as the assistant director of a freshman writing program, which was really fun. And I was training and helping teachers. And my big initiative there was, establishing what we call the lesson share, where I would just visit every instructor and be like, hey, I know you've developed workshop or worksheets or different activities to help you teach concepts. Would you just donate that into a common pool that everybody can use? Because when I was a first-time freshman writing teacher, I had never taken freshman writing. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, how do you teach this? And I was like super hungry for experienced instructors to show me what's the handout you use to teach citation? Or what's the handout you use to teach? You know, I just wanted that material so I could adapt it and make it my own. Mm -hmm. And I realized lots of people feel that way. And lots of educators are proud of what they've made and want to share it and want to help improve teaching. So that was the big project. And I was like, this is easy and it's fun. People are just sharing what they're teaching and it makes us all better. So that had been what I was doing there. And then I got a job where I was working at a design lab, which was basically like a writing center for digital media assignments. And I was doing much of the similar kind of work. And then I had an opportunity to uh, do a podcast, actually, with a group that was providing instructional technology support or pedagogical support for the whole college. And they had me talk about design lab and what we did. And then they, at the end of that, they said, Hey, you know, we're actually hiring for a position um, for an instructional technology consultant. Do you know anybody who might be interested? And I hadn't even known that this existed as a field or known that they had existed. And I raised my hand and said, yeah, me, I'm this dead end English poetry professor <laughs> thing, and it's not going to turn into a job. So I'd kind of be interested in that. Sounds cool. And so that was sort of how it happened kind of providentially. That's where I met actually Morgan. And mm -hmm. uh, my job was to find out what instructors needed to be able to teach more effectively and help them meet those needs, often using technology. And a lot of times the, the need was, we're humanities professors, we have this great idea, this great material, or in the case of language instruction, a lot of the people I was working with were teaching less commonly taught languages. So in particular, I remember there was a, a man who was teaching Tibetan, mm. lovely person. He'd been there for about 10 years. There is not a Tibetan textbook that's commercially available. It's just not widely taught enough for a commercial textbook publisher to say, let's put out a Tibetan textbook and make money selling it. So he had been over the course of a decade making his own textbook and doing it in Microsoft Word. And he was like, oh, I really would like to include flashcards and language practice and quizzing, but I just don't know how to do it in Word. And the answer is you don't do it in Word, right? You have to have a different tool for it. And so what I loved about my job was to be able to say, okay, I see this need you have to teach and make this, to keep your language alive, to help it flourish, to help people uh, become active participants in this language. Can we provide the tools that will let you do that, that will let you meet the teaching needs you have? Then that became my motivation to get whatever technical skills I developed because I had this idea that I was like, wow, this will make a difference for advancing this goal and making this this knowledge or this language open to anyone who wants to access it. And that's beautiful. I feel, I mean, that's something I wake up in the morning and I think, yeah, that's worth doing today. And the way that Steele and I met was I was working on a digital humanities project with Professor Ann Smart Martin at Madison. And I was building a static site. And then I was almost done with the static site when Ann realized that she wanted more functionality than a static site would be able to give us. So we talked to Steele about options on campus for support for migrating that to a different format using either WordPress or Drupal. Right. And a lot of my conversations were kind of similar. It'd be like, here's a unusual or an edge case problem and how can we support this? And sometimes it was using campus supported tools. In other cases like yours, it was like, how can we cobble this mm -hmm. together? Most of the time, the advice would be like to tell the person, sorry, they're out of luck. And I just wasn't very good at doing that. And I was like, yeah, let's figure this out. So I loved your kinds of projects where it's like, oh, wow, this is a really interesting problem. How could we solve it? And sometimes you'd be recommending a non-campus supported tool 
And I'd have to mm-hmm. do that unofficially. And whenever I did, I was like, well, it's a, for me at least, a very strong incentive to steer people towards open mm-hmm. source software for all of the reasons probably you've identified, especially the freedom reason. If I'm going to advise them to use a non-campus supported tool, it's definitely not going to be a proprietary <laughs> subscription <laughs> service. Yeah. And then for digital humanities and like small projects like that, in addition to all of the freedom issues that everyone on this call agrees with, there's also the issue of those projects have very little funding. Totally. So if you've got very little funding for your project, don't blow your entire budget on proprietary software. Yes. Carve, the, carve <laughs> that down and pass it around. You know, that's a great advice. Absolutely, Morgan. So speaking of making things available for people to use and collaborate and et cetera, so you work at an organization called Pressbooks, correct? I do. Yeah. Would you mind explaining what that is and how that might help people as in terms of making open educational resources slash publishing a possibility for them? Sure. So my Pressbook story is kind of this. It was while I was at Wisconsin, I saw a bunch of instructors like this Tibetan language instructor who are trying to produce and publish textbooks and textbooks material. And we were not serving them well with the right tools to meet their needs. Instead, we were going, a lot of times they were going out and being like, what tool can we purchase and what does it do? Okay, instructors, here's what you can do. Rather than starting with the need to say, what is it that the instructor's goals are? What are their pedagogical ambitions? And what do we want to accomplish for the learners? And so for me, I started by writing like this foundational document. Here's the core principles that I want. And that still exists. It's probably published. It's on Medium or my blog. And once I had those core principles, then I began looking for tools that would allow us to do as much of this as possible. And because I had core principles that included freedom and the ability to remix and own your content and take it in and out of the platform, it really was a strong bias towards open source software, which supports similar principles. So the, the tool that I ended up adopting at Wisconsin was Pressbooks. And Pressbooks is open source book publishing software, essentially. It is uh, an open source project that's built on top of the WordPress platform, which is a very popular CMS for web publishing. And the idea is that when you install WordPress plus the Pressbooks plugin, it transforms a WordPress multi-site into a CMS for books, more or less a content management system for books. So the idea is that you'll have a central website at a basic URL that has like a landing page that says, welcome to this network of books and a catalog and other kinds of book homepage features. And then every time you create a new site, you can have as many sites as you want on this network. Each new site will be a standalone book. So the book will have its own URL. The book can have its own theme. The book has its own homepage with metadata on it. The book has front matter, back matter, parts, chapters, and it's a web first, first class citizen of the web. So it's built to include multimedia. It's built to include interactivity. It's built to include annotation and all the kinds of things you can do on the modern web. So Pressbooks will do that. And that's the kind of like exciting part for me as an educator of having the Pressbooks platform. Because it's built on WordPress, it's also pretty extensible to absorb some of the kinds of WordPress plugins that people like to extend WordPress, which is nice. And then the other big thing that Pressbooks does is it serves as kind of a document conversion utility. So if people are familiar with open source command line interface tools, there's one called Pandoc. That's like a pretty magical tool that will turn a document from one kind of document to another. And people often use it to convert markdown into document files, etc. So Pressbooks, you can think of Pressbooks as kind of a graphical user interface version of Pandoc in some ways. So we have an import or an ingestion tool that says, hey, if you have an EPUB or if you have an HTML file or if you have a Word document or an open document template or even an XML file from WordPress or Pressbooks, you can import it and we will parse it and turn it into a book. And then when you're done with your book, it will be a web book if you want it to be, or Pressbooks will generate export formats for you and will make an EPUB for you or make a Mobi file if you want to use Amazon's proprietary format, which you don't. Or you could make a PDF for print or a PDF for digital distribution, and it will be a print-ready, beautiful PDF, or we'll make a document export, or we'll make an HTML export, or we'll make an XML export. We have a big set of export routines. And the idea there is that if you have written this book or this content, Pressbooks is is a publishing platform, but it's also a way for you to take that content and use and distribute it however you want to use it. It's that idea that the creator deserves the freedom to put it in the standard they want and to distribute it in the standard that they want. So on our EDU networks, you'll often see that when you visit the homepage of the book, you can read the whole book for free, 
you'll see there's a clear com oh, Creative Commons license. And often they'll make the downloadable formats available for free download so that you can have offline access to that material as well. And so for me, that's what's so exciting about Pressbooks and that's why people often use it. If you're an academic or if you're a teacher or you're just a person who knows some things and you want to write a book and share it easily, Pressbooks is a pretty nice choice for doing that. Am I right that Pressbooks, so it's built on top of WordPress, but it's, it is, it's, which is open source under, I think, the GPL v3. Yeah. And Pressbooks itself is a likewise GPL v3 extension. Is that right? Yeah. Pressbooks is released under the GPL v3 license. And Pressbooks technically is a WordPress plugin, though it requires a clean WordPress multi site. And then once you've installed it, it profoundly transforms WordPress so that it's, Pressbooks rather than WordPress in, for all intents and purposes. We also publish a number of plugins and themes, which are also openly licensed. And then we do maintain some not openly licensed plugins and themes for there are uh, educational SaaS clients, which I can talk about a little bit later. Okay, great. And Pressbooks also has more recently made a directory, right, for making it easier to locate and access these books. Is that correct? Absolutely. This is a project that I've been working on for the last you know, year or so with our development team. And we're really, really proud of this and we think it's pretty exciting. So if you wanted to see it yourself on the web, you could go to pressbooks.directory. And what it is, is this is a single page web application that presents an index, a referatory to over 2,500 public books that are published across about a hundred different Pressbooks networks that are mainly operated by universities. So the focus or the audience for this is mostly probably people working in higher education or they want to learn things at like an advanced high school or college level. There's lots more books out there that are public, but we're focusing primarily on this kind of higher education user market or user audience. So if you go to the directory, you'll be able to search the directory. And what you'll be doing is searching the metadata of a couple thousand books across many different distributed Pressbooks networks. A lot of these we will host, and some of them are just open source networks run by other universities. So we have an API for our books. And so the directory has a couple of components. There's a little serverless function that goes out and regularly fetches new metadata from all of these Pressbook networks. And then it stores it in a searchable database and the directory provides some search tools and some faceting and filtering to help you find books on a topic of interest for you. Once you find it from the directory, it will then point you to where the book lives on the web. So you can go get it there. Often you can read it there, you can download it there, you can use it for your course. And if you want to make your own copy of it, then you go to the homepage of that book and you grab the URL and we have a cloning routine in Pressbooks that makes it like, a, you know, a two-click process to take an existing open license book and make a local copy or clone that you can then mm -hmm. edit, revise, redistribute, and all that stuff. So we're hoping that the directory is a place for people to discover things they want to adopt and things that they want to adapt and make their own and hopefully share back to the directory when they're done. Yeah, that all sounds amazing. We love it. So Chris and I both took a look at the directory before recording, and I think that it would be fun if we just kind of all maybe mentioned some of the projects that we found interesting. Cool, do it. So I found multiple art history survey textbooks on press, press books, which I am very excited about because art history books tend to be very big mm. and full of color pictures and therefore very expensive. And the primary benefit of having a survey textbook is so that you can say that it's figure 23 on page whatever, and then there's less miscommunication for students and stuff like that. So if there is an open access option totally. for teaching a survey class where I don't have to make my students go out and spend, you know, 130 to $200 on a book that they may never use after this class, then I definitely want to use that. Was there a particular art history book that you liked that you found? It is Art History 1 Survey. Oh, nice. Yeah, this one's from a group called Achieving the Dream. Is this the one? I believe so. Yeah, it's by... Uh, Associate Professor Emeritus Bruce Schwabach. I apologize yes. if I mispronounce your name. I obviously haven't had time to read the whole thing yet, but it looks really solid for a survey textbook. Yeah, this is cool. This is a, I can talk a little bit about this book because I know a little bit of history. So um, this book was created by this professor along with an organization called Lumen Learning. Yes, that is correct. Lumen Learning was founded by David Wiley, who came up with the five R's that I quoted earlier. Mm-hmm. There's a two-part series for this one. This The first part covers prehistoric art to the Italian Renaissance, and mm -hmm. then the second part is Italian Renaissance to 
probably the beginning of copyright, I would expect. <laughs> but the cool part about this is Achieving the Dream is an awesome organization. And they are basically a consortium of largely community colleges that are working to increase educational access in the United States, particularly for marginalized students or students that have been previously excluded from educational opportunity. And they funded the development of a ton of really great openly licensed books across a lot of different introductory survey classes. And we're really proud and happy that those art history ones are in there because they are pretty impressive. Yeah. So that was my favorite find. Awesome. Cool, Maureen. How about you, Chris? Oh, yeah. I'm looking on the directory. There there were a number of ones that looked interesting, but I, I haven't had a chance to really look at them fully. Like there was this open anthology of a American literature, which seemed pretty interesting. Super cool book. Yes. Yeah. But I, I haven't had a chance to read that one. But there's a book here that I have read previously because I was reading it actually running up to the episode we did on music and chiptunes and kind of basic music theory. Uh, there's a book called Open Music Theory, which I think we even linked in the show notes of that episode. Now I'm seeing that here in the directory. Um, I don't know if I had seen on the Open Music Theory website that it was using Pressbooks. So that actually leads to a question. A, do you know if they're using Pressbooks? And B, do you uh, also include some OER book resources that might not be done in, in Pressbooks in this directory? Or is this all Pressbooks-based things inside of the directory? So this Pressbooks directory is all Pressbooks-based books. So okay. if you find a book in the Pressbooks directory, it means it was published with Pressbooks. And the reason would be what we're trying to do is make it easier for people... To, not just to adopt, but to adapt. So our cloning tool works best with things in the platform. So if you found the Open Music Theory book here, that means it was published on Pressbooks and you could easily clone it with another Pressbooks network. Yeah. Okay. And I, I see something interesting here where it says notated example with embedded music score player and some stuff about interactive uh -huh. content and stuff like that. Yeah. I imagine that stuff that also might not have come with Pressbooks directly because not everybody else is doing, you know, uh, they're not doing music stuff directly, but there's part of the advantage of being built on a more flexible CMS is that you're able to kind of tweak it to specific needs of projects. And, and I'm guessing Open Music Theory is a, an, an example of doing that. Yeah. So there have been a bunch of technical challenges. So if we were only making web books, the world would be super easy for a lot of the things that we do. The trick is that when we're thinking about Pressbooks, we're thinking, okay, web first, which is a big change over the traditional publishing, which is print first and then web is like a very late afterthought often. So we're thinking web first, but then we're also thinking we have to produce an EPUB and the EPUB specification is HTML, but the readers don't support everything. So some of the stuff has to get stripped out. HTML-ish. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of JavaScript won't work in your EPUB reader, you know. And then we also are thinking, and then we're going to make a print version of this book that needs to look good. And when you make a PDF, you're losing all of your interactivity, generally. Not always, but most of the time. Especially a print PDF. You're not going to be able to click play when you open up your print book, right? <laughs> so that's the big challenge for us. So for as by way of example, one of the things that we added support for was mathematical notation or LaTeX or different forms of this. It's pretty easy to use MathJax, which is an outstanding JavaScript library for web versions of this. But then when we make the EPUB, it doesn't support MathJax or we make the PDF and we can't use MathJax. And so what we had to do at Pressbooks was we develop a microservice and the microservice says when we produce the XHTML version or the HTML version of the book that we will base our EPUB and PDF exports on, we need to find every instance of LaTeX or of math. And then we have a little service that we turn that into an image with an alt tag and then we replace it so that the EPUB will have an image with the math in it rather than unrenderable JavaScript. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times when we're doing interactivity, the big question is how can we fall back gracefully to formats that don't support it? And so the, the complexity increases there and music theory is another great example where there's an XML standard for music. And if you're just doing a web book, you can do that just fine. But then how do you represent it in other places? So one of the other big challenges has been language and script support. Mm -hmm. because not all characters exist or glyphs exist in every typeface. You can solve it for the web, but then when you're making a PDF, you have to embed those typefaces. And when you're making the EPUB, you have to make sure those typefaces and characters are available. And so we have a process and a routine where if you're working with music, for example, you can add musical notation as a supported, as an extra script. And then what we will do is download and include a really nice open Muse score. I'd offhand, I don't remember the name of the typeface, but it's an openly licensed typeface that includes all the glyphs for the common musical notation. And that's, you know, that's an interesting learning process for us. And it's one of those things where I'm like, that's as a difficult technical problem. But once I see the need, it just becomes so much easier. It becomes a joy to try to solve that for the person because I'm like, yeah, I want to help you publish a cool music theory book. Let's figure this out together. <laughs> 
so wait, side note, this is this is blowing my mind a little bit. So I knew that there were I had encountered while browsing various uh, websites that are full of Unicode curiosities. I've seen uh-huh, the Unicode yes. <laughs> characters for musical notes, but is is that what's actually being done to render I guess these musical scores is actually use the Unicode characters for musical notes and stuff like that to arrange it on the page? So you can. The music theory book that you're working with, I be- that looking at, I believe they were just inserting images. But there's another music theory book that um, they published at SUNY Geneseo. Uh, I can put the link in the ch- chat so you can look at it. Uh, the viewers at home will put it in the show notes or something. This was by Andre Mount. And this book actually does use the Unicode characters for his staff, for his score, for everything. And this, this was the book that actually pushed us to include musical notation in our GitHub repository as one of the typefaces that you can, you can add. I will try to look up, this is a little bit nerdy side note, but I will try to look up the commit because I was the one who wrote the commit to add musical notation. <laughs> and I'll look, up, I'll look up exactly what we did for musical notation. It was a few months ago, so it's not fresh in my mind, but um, it was uh, Bravura, it's called. Bravura is, let me look at Bravura, I think Bravura Sans was the name of it. It's what they call a smoothful font, <laughs> the standard music standard music font layout fonts. And it's this cool, we're getting a little bit in the weeds, but um, smoothful is a way of representing musical notation using a, a, an open type font with the glyphs for all of the kind of common things that you'd put in a musical score. Um, we're using Bravura text, I believe, in Pressbooks now. Very cool. To lead us out of the weeds, Steele, do you have a favorite project using Pressbooks that you would like to talk about? Well, I can't use the word favorite because then everyone would be mad at me. But um, you can't say you have a favorite child. I know I'd be <laughs> I'd be fired as a parent. But I will tell you, I'll tell you one that I like. How about that? Okay. Here, here's one that is close to my heart today that I appreciate for, and I'll tell you why. There's a really cool project that I found through the directory um, called Inclusive Spectrums. Ooh. This was built by students in a inclusive design graduate program at OCAD University in Toronto. And they used this book to present their major research project for their graduate degrees. And so this really is a spectrum of projects about how to include people with better design in a, in a variety of ways in society. So the cohort themselves are a really interesting, diverse group of students studying a really interesting, diverse group of topics. And I thought this book was really well done. What I like so much about it is it's student-created. This was a project that they were asked to do as part of their graduate degree that is enormously socially, socially useful itself. So their student work isn't just a throwaway term paper. Mm-hmm. It's got a Creative Commons license that it permits really broad use. It can be downloaded in all of the formats because they're thinking about multiple modes of access. And the projects themselves are awesome. I just learned so much. One of my friends actually at BC campus was writing about equity in OER publishing and talking a little bit about her use of Pressbooks and their use of Pressbooks there in lots of different ways. And so that was one of my favorite sections there. Um, but the whole book itself is really outstanding. And so it's kind of like a, a seminar capstone or like a, a master's exhibit presented and published as a book form. And I just thought that was a really exciting project. And I love seeing projects like that and would love to see more of them. That is pretty awesome. You mentioned that this is a decentralized group of networks. Yes. And there are different people running these. So who typically is running these networks and what type of scale do you see on them? Great question. So I would say the knowledge needed to install and run your own Pressbooks network is not trivial. We try to make it easy, but you have to you have to know how to install WordPress multi-site and then install a bunch of dependencies on your server. And then you have to be able to install Pressbooks and then a handful of plugins. And so I started as an open source user and I was just a, you know, PhD humanities guy that was working in instructional technology and I put it on a server and it was kind of complicated and I made mistakes and I was struggling and I had to learn a little bit of sysadmin stuff and I wasn't practicing always good security hygiene and all those kinds of things. So I would say that usually you need to have some kind of DevOps or sysadmin skills Mm -hmm. to be able to run and host a complicated web publishing project that allows... Uploading, exporting, and all that kind of stuff. So with that said, um, there are a lot of open source users, some that we know about and others that we don't. 
Most of the people that we're supporting really actively in Pressbooks right now, there's kind of a couple of different flavors for Pressbooks. If you just want to self-publish your own book, like if you're just an author that wants to publish one book, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to run your own Pressbooks network. It's kind of overkill, if I'm going to be honest. Mm -hmm. So for those people, the option is you go to Pressbooks.com, which is like WordPress.com where you just make your own site, you know, on this huge multi-site. Mm -hmm. So there are like 100,000 books on Pressbooks.com. And it's a nominal fee. You can create a book for free, basically. And if you want to produce exports, you pay like a one-time fee of $20. So, so a lot of people just do that if they just want to publish, self-publish a book. Another option would be we have a product that gets sold or distributed through public libraries. So we will host networks for public libraries. And anybody with a library card at that public library system can go and create a Pressbooks book that way. So that, that covers most of that self-publishing market. Mm -hmm. The market that we're most active in, though, is this educational market. And then that probably takes one of two shapes. Usually, it's the level of a department or higher that decides they want a Pressbooks instance. Mm -hmm. In many cases, it's going to be the libraries or whoever's doing the open publishing initiative at a school. So it'd be a scholarly communication librarian or a copyright librarian. Sometimes it's the Center for Instructional Technology. Sometimes it's distance education. And they're going to say, we want to host a Pressbooks network for use by X. Sometimes it's all the faculty in our department. More commonly, it's everybody at our university, faculty and students, which we love. And so in that case, you could have whoever's hosting web services at your campus install and host it on a server. Or the way that we Pressbooks funds itself as a business is we offer enterprise SaaS hosting. So what we will say is institution, we will uh, install, host, and maintain a Pressbooks network for you. It will include all the open source stuff. It will include a couple of things that we've custom built for educational institutions and hosted clients because we know our infrastructure and there's like some visualization, some dashboards, some kind of tools that would help an open publishing program. And then we'll also provide training and support for the network administrators or the network managers there. And so that's our business model. So I would say of the books in the Pressbooks directory, the vast majority are on educational networks that we host. Mm -hmm. And then there's maybe 10 or 12 open source educational networks where either a university or a consortium has chosen to host it themselves because they have the resources and the know-how to do it that way. So, Steele, could you give us a comparison between the approaches that you've been talking about with, you know, kind of open educational publishing and so on, um, with kind of the more traditional publishing model? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say, if you want to discuss this further, there's people that are more experienced and, and have deeper knowledge in this. I would say, in particular, there's the folks at the Rebus Foundation. So Zoe Wakai and Napurva Ashok have a lot of great ideas about what this looks like. Um, and then there's also the people that are doing what we would call scholar-led publishing or radical open access. But my basic kind of taxonomical breakdown would be this. So when we're talking about traditional scholarly publishing or university press publishing. Usually what we're talking about are monographs on a particular topic that are published through a traditional peer review research model. And in that model, uh, scholars will write on a topic of interest to them. Other scholars who are experts in the field will review those manuscripts, and there will be an editorial team that serve most of the kind of traditional publishing functions at a formal press, a university press. That model has been around for a long time, and it's produced some really high-quality books. Like university presses make really great books with high production quality, with great content quality, and often serving a, a range of niche to less niche fields, I guess. In that model, there is a space and there is definitely room for moving towards web-first or uh, other publishing uh, workflows. It's underway, and there's been a bunch of foundations that have been interested in funding some publishing tools. So there's a, a handful of projects that are pretty interesting in that particular sphere. Would be There's a, a project called Manifold, which is open source software that I think started at the University of Minnesota and had some grant funding. And there's a developer in Portland and a team called Cast Iron Coding that's been working on that. There's a bunch of interesting stuff happening out of California. And uh, while I'm talking, their name's slipping in my mind but it's not intentional. It's not a slight, I promise. And Adam Hyde and the people in New Zealand have built some really cool uh, open source libraries that allow you to do that whole scholarly publishing process um, with open source software in a kind of more modern web-based way. And it's called Editoria, I just remembered. And the group is called Coco, K-O-K-O, I think. And then there's also stuff like what they're doing with the Knowledge Futures Project at MIT. There's a group called PubPub 
which is trying to think about book publishing and book communities. And there's a, there's a handful of really interesting projects. Scalar, I think, came out of Southern mm -hmm. California. And a lot of those people are thinking about how can we do monograph and academic publishing differently or better or more effectively, more efficiently, and, and uh, less expensive and more web-based. You mentioned the peer review for the university presses, and there are people specifically in the scholar-led publishing who are still doing peer review for the web-first publishing as well, right? So you don't necessarily need the university press model in order to have peer review. Correct. Yeah, that, that is absolutely. I just didn't want it to come off as, you know, something someone would misread. Yeah, thank you. So there's the, there's a kind of, I guess, a genre of knowledge, which would be the academic monograph. And then there is a, a genre of publishing, which would be the textbook or the open educational resource. And those, I think, have slightly different histories and slightly different workflows from beginning to completion. So if I'm going up for tenure, I can often present a scholarly monograph published by University Press as evidence of my research publications. But I generally cannot present a textbook necessarily as research. It's not always the same. Or an open educational resource that I publish. Because the process of review and what counts as research versus summarizing existing knowledge is a little different. So when we're talking about open educational resources, often we're talking about material that's used for teaching and learning, often at an introductory level or like an undergraduate level, rather than cutting edge research or knowledge in the field. So those, those publication flows and needs are slightly different. And most of the people using press books are primarily focused on the teaching and learning material and the OER creation, mm -hmm. which is a little bit different in its intent and its process than the scholarly monograph. So Pressbooks can, of course, be used to make scholarly monographs. You'll have a workflow and different things in that. But I think most of our users right now, most of the time, are focusing on replacing expensive proprietary textbooks, particularly, or mm -hmm. material that you would use in a course to teach. Yeah. Um, but I would say absolutely, if, if people are interested in this and uh, access to knowledge, you definitely want to be following what's happening with scholarly publishing and a group called Radical Open Access. And we'll put some links maybe in the show notes. Yeah. A lot of cool energy in the UK and in Europe about this with some pretty imp impressive presses in the United States and Canada as well. So we like to end our show off by asking what you're currently crafting um, or if you have any current craft projects you would like to talk about. Yeah, I love that you asked this. This is one of the delightful parts of your podcast. So I uh, am a father and that's a big craft project, I guess you're <laughs> assembling a young human and you hope that they make a difference in the world. So that occupies a lot of my time outside of work. And I would consider that a form of crafting, uh, mm -hmm. daily crafting. And then um, I also am working on a scholarly project that is, is very fun for me. My dissertation was about a group of poets called the Objectivists. And there was a woman from Wisconsin who was a poet uh, writing in uh, between the 30s and the late 60s named Lorreen Niedeker. And she was very important to me as a person, as a writer, as a, all those things. And um, she was a, 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 someone who's changed my life, her writing and her thinking. And I am now working with uh, Jenny Penberthy, who edited Niedeker's collected works. We're working on a selected, a, a selected edition of Lorraine Niedeker's letters. And so it's an editing project. And there's definitely a craft element there because we're collecting and assembling. And then we'll be trying to prepare a presentation of letters that reflect this woman's life and mind and writing. And it's my first kind of post PhD scholarly project. And we're taking it slow. I don't have a ton of time on it, but it's been really enjoyable. And uh, that's a craft project that I care a lot about. Excellent. Well, and if you send it to us when it's released and ready, we can share it with our audience as well. Absolutely. And it will be uh, open access for sure when it's done. So the last credit craft project is actually one that my partner or wife has published recently. So my wife's a poet. She had this manuscript of erasure poems that deal with white supremacy and some of the toxic masculinity and other kinds of cultural problems we have in the United States. And she had this manuscript that she kept shopping around for these publishing poetry award contests. And it was a finalist many times, but never did win the publication prize. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up just publishing it, doing it ourselves in Pressbooks and making it freely available to read and to download there in Pressbooks. Excellent. So if you want to read that, it's called White Jaw and it's whitejaw.pressbooks.com. Yeah. And that link will also be in the show notes. So those are the those are the crafting things I'd mentioned, I guess. That sounds great, and I would imagine you also do some crafting things with your child, because you know there's always crafts, children. <laughs> oh, definitely. We uh, a lot of art, a lot of drawing, um, and he has become interested in Minecraft. So that's a I haven't quite developed the fever for it that he has, but I want to be supportive and encouraging and stimulate creativity. So yeah, and encourage him to kind of branch out into the programming side because you can customize things in Minecraft. Yeah, I, I've, 
what are they called? Some kind of blocks. There's some kind of uh, command blocks. So he's been asking me about command blocks and I'm helping him write the commands for that. So that's kind of fun. I think he realizes that the game is uh, hackable, extensible, and that's just as fun for him as the playing the traditional path. Okay. Well, uh, Steel, thank you for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun and uh, very haha educational. <laughs> Yeah, I guess where where can people find you if they want to if they want to follow what what kind of work you're doing? My website is just my name dot info, or I'm on Twitter. Uh, my name Steel Wagstaff. So that's probably the best places to contact me. If you want to be involved or find out more about the Pressbooks project, um, Pressbooks.org is the website for the open source project. And then we also have a number of GitHub repositories that are just at GitHub.com backslash Pressbooks. And we try to be inclusive and welcoming to newcomers who may want to make contributions of any kind. One of the big things is localizations into other languages. So Pressbooks is available in lots of languages, but if you have language skills and want to see it available in a language it's not in, that would be a wonderful contribution that um, people with language gifts could make to the global community. I also took a peek at your GitHub, and it looks like you have pretty good documentation for people who may not be uh, developers. Yeah, we try. I mean, that's where I started. I was not a professional developer, and now I'm the product manager. And if you want to get involved and help and don't know where to start, we are human beings, and we are welcoming, and you can always ask, and we will try to include you and make you feel part of our community. Excellent. Great. All right. Well, thank you again, and uh, I guess see you on the internet. Yes. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks both of you. Good luck with everything. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Chris Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Chris Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community in hash Crafts at irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Sorry. You can, you can say okay again.